I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Paul Wells, podcast host and journalist in Ottawa. Hello. Remember when I used to have real jobs? It, it's the future. The podcast bubble will never break. Well, we'll see. Today on the show, Paul, the podcast bubble breaks. Spotify joins, well, job cuts at CBC, uh, TVA, CTV, yeah. and Reader's Digest is gone. Google, rescue us. Also, Paul, on today's show, the Oscar for Best Documentary goes to Pierre Polyev. Welcome to Shortcuts. We're going to talk shit about the news. It's been too long. Good to be here. This episode is brought to everyone by Devin Lasher, Lisa Ashenhurst, Greg Moore, Chris Krasnichuk, Thomas Evers, Nina Patterson, Axel Trujillo, and Blake. Hi, I'm Blake. I'm a post-secondary instructor in Calgary. I love Canada Land podcasts because they have a critical and engaging perspective that constantly pushes boundaries and challenges the status quo. They shine a light on stories that need to be heard, and they're constantly challenging orthodoxy. I can't get enough.
Paul, I'm so jealous of you. You you have not been podcasting very long at all. I've been at it for like over 10 years covering the media and not once has the president of the CBC just called me up and just offered me an exclusive interview. But that happened to you. She's been bugging me for months and finally I said, "Look, Catherine, okay, okay." No, well, not quite. But yes, that was a pleasant surprise. I've also had the commander of the Navy call and ask if I could talk to him for my newsletter. So it, it's fun out here in the independence. Why? I hate to, to, to question this. There's so many reasons why somebody like Catherine Tate, the president of the CBC, might want to come on your podcast. Why do you think she wanted to come? You know, you got uh, her office set this up. They put this forward. Why do you think they wanted her on your show when they did? So... I think they wanted some reasonably safe external validation, right? They wanted to not only talk to the CBC, and in the end, Adrian Arsenault turned out to be pretty tough. They also wanted to talk to some other news sources. And I think, look, the whole my whole shtick on my podcast is that I let the guests talk. I asked them about all the hard questions. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. What? No, you should give it a try. This is a bold, what? <laughs> you should, you know, and, and so typically. I don't mean to tell you how it's done, man. But, uh... <laughs> That's right. I don't have, I don't have Scott Reed freaking out next to me. <laughs> I just have, I love you, Scott. Just there's the guest and I ask a question, the guest talks. And typically whenever a listener doesn't like the guest, they find that I've been far too easy on the guest. So I got angry emails when I let Jason Kenny talk, and I got angry emails when I let David Eby, the NDP Premier of British Columbia, talk. And some people thought I went, I went way too easy on um, Catherine Tate. Not to interrupt you, Paul, but she would know that if she came on your show, she'd be able to talk. Yeah. I also think that there's an element of she wanted to talk to the new media world rather than another corner of the old media world. Right. My favorite moment of the whole thing was when I asked her to name her favorite conservative analyst on the CBC, because of course she can't name one because since Rex left, they really don't have one. I don't think I need to comment on commentators. (laughs) I think our teams do wonderful job selecting and bringing people in for good conversations. I just wish there was more representation from more corners of the country. Let's put it that way. I'm going to put forward a theory to you, Paul, as to why she may have knocked on your door when she did. Sure. She knew something you did not know. She knew that this was about to be all over the news. There are questions this morning about the fate of CBC Radio-Canada and some of its programming. The public broadcaster is preparing to lay off 600 employees, as much as 10% of the workforce. An organization used to covering the news, now part of an ongoing story. CBC Radio-Canada, the latest media outlet to announce deep cuts. As you mentioned earlier, she went on the CBC and faced Adrian Arsenault, who had information you didn't about these hundreds of cuts and was able to ask her a very tough question. Are you still going to give millions of dollars of bonuses to CBC executives as you're laying off hundreds of journalists? And, and she was looked like a deer in headlights and that and that went viral. I'm just just curious about something. I, I'm going to presume no bonuses this year. I mean, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation said a freedom of information request showed 16 million were paid in bonuses in 2022. Can we establish that that is not happening this year? It's too early to say where we are for for this year. We'll be looking at that like we do all our line items in the coming months. So there's a there's a chance bonuses could still happen at a time when jobs are being cut. I, again, I, I'm not going to comment on something that hasn't been discussed at this point. So, okay. 
she's been at this a while and she knew that she was going to have a bad day in the press. Do you feel used like, like like she was able to kind of like get something? I think you dealt with it really well because in your podcast, you gave that context before playing the interview. But you did not have the opportunity to ask her those tough questions about the cuts because they hadn't been announced yet. So I didn't feel more used than I usually do. <laughs> I mean, I'm the guy who moderated a, a non-network national leaders debate in 2015 on the obvious understanding that it was because Stephen Harper didn't like the traditional venues. And I was used by Stephen Harper. I was used by Tom Mulcair. May he rest in peace. And they ganged up and, and kind of forced Justin Trudeau. I've got a long history of understanding that everyone's in this for mercenary purposes. And they talk to us if it, if it serves their purposes and they don't if it doesn't. I uh, my, my standing invitation to Justin Trudeau and Pierre Pauly have to come on my podcast will never lapse. And oddly, they're not falling all over themselves to come on. But whenever they do, I'll, you know, they can use me too. No, we're, we're not new at this. But it is an interesting technique that she was sort of like planting the seed of a, of a, you know, at least on that day, there would be one interview with her that seemed like relatively friendly where she'd get to speak at length uh, about how poorly funded the CBC is and what a champion she is for it and not, and not be put in that position. So it was an interesting play and it didn't come from CBC's communications department. It came from her office. I've never seen the president, you know, kind of try to stick handle their image in that way before. It is true that I, I did not know that I had been cast as the good cop in a good cop, bad cop drama. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the wider story, of course, that as many as 600 employees are going to lose their jobs at the CBC and another 200 are not going to be, uh, spots are not going to be refilled. It's uh, as much as 10% of the workforce. This is huge, huge cuts at the CBC. And they're blaming it on the same forces that are, you know, resulting in like ah, Spotify. I mean, they're slashing 1,500 jobs globally, but I think what hit the podcast sector is like maybe the two best podcasts out there, Connie Walker's Stolen and Jonathan Goldstein's Heavyweight. Like if a Pulitzer can't save you, you know, but maybe Spotify's not in the Pulitzer business anymore. They're in the Joe Rogan business and elsewhere. But, you know, it's just, you know, goes from bad to worse to worse. Like Reader's Digest was this thing that you could always just like depend on existing. And I'm not going to get all teary-eyed for Reader's Digest, but I know a lot of freelancers who were able to kind of get through some lean times <laughs> working for Reader's Digest. It's almost like I've been telling this story for years, like next round of deep cut layoffs, next round of deep cut layoffs and closures. And the question's always like, like, when is there anything left? And, you know, I think we what we're seeing is that it is possible to keep a, like, skeleton kind of shambling through as, you know, like some sort of hollow remnant of Canada's media indefinitely. Oh, absolutely. I call that McLean's. And maybe we won't dwell on that for too long, but <laughs> I was looking over the shattered landscape of North American media. There is no longer a print uh, National Geographic. There is no longer a popular science magazine. At least there's a thing called McLean's that every once in a while, through some sort of uh, quality control error, some political coverage sneaks into it, although mercifully you don't remember it two minutes after you've read it. I am sure, we don't correspond, but I'm sure the good folks over there would claim that it's some kind of triumph that they're still putting out a shitty magazine long after some other uh, prominent properties have, have closed their doors entirely. I mean, it's it's a, it's owned by a private company. I mean, uh, like all I could say is I guess I'm trying to make a go of it and and not be the company that kills it for good, you know, and, I'll, I'll, you know, you got to hope that they succeed at that. But that's a tough one. That's a tough brand to to see through this. I don't know who's safe. It's, you know, podcasts were, were deemed safe and, and sort of isolated from the media apocalypse for a while. But the cratering of the ad market seems to just be 
taking down American podcast companies one after the next. And the cord cutting thing, which Catherine Tate got into, like the broader trend is that there were various pipelines of guaranteed money in Canadian media. And the Canadian media that you and I have known for years, it's almost independent of whether people wanted this media. There was always going to be millions of dollars flowing in to broadcasters because they were lumped into basic cable and anybody who got a cable subscription was subsidizing these cable stations. And now, like very quickly, the, the, the cord cutting is is happening and, 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 you know, twice as many people are getting their TV from streaming services as cable. That's like a, a cliff that some of these stations are falling off of. So whatever, we are entering a place where if there is going to be Canadian media, it's not going to be because there's some guaranteed pipeline. It's it's going to be because people actually want it unless, unless Google saves us forever. And, and we're yeah. speaking, you know, last week was when the deal was announced, $100 million. We can talk about the Google deal. I believe that's actually what I'm here to do. But one of my short answers to this whole thing is, the one thing none of these subsidy programs can deliver is reader attention. None of these programs, they can maybe keep a few people working in the newsroom somewhere. They can maybe help some companies meet their month-end expenses. But what they can't do is put people's eyeballs on the journalism. And that's turning out to be a real hard problem. I mean, young people, my own kids and my family, their peers have a very tenuous relationship to print journalism, even on their phones. They don't really think that's an interesting or useful part of their day to have a, you know, I, I mean, I mentor younger journalists and I ask them, who are your favorite reporters? And very often they can't name one because it all just kind of tumbles in and, oh, you know, onto their phone. And why on earth should they keep track of trivia like that? It's a, I mean, it's a weird world. What did you make of, of Catherine Tate's, uh, I, I listened with interest to your interview with her and it seemed to me like we heard the usual talking points that, you know, other countries have a lot more money for public broadcasting and we do, you know, in Canada, they've got to do it in two different languages and all these other languages and the, the job of the CBC is so hard and people are getting terrific value and kind of like this denial of like, you know, all, all you hear is that nobody's watching the national anymore. But if you count all the online streams, the national is just as popular as ever. And, you know, you ask some tough questions about like the, the people are just are trusting the news less. And she goes, well, I think if Canadians, they're not right to distrust us. And <laughs> if they don't trust us, it's just because they're not trusting anyone. It's because, you know, trust in public institutions is falling. And I felt like this person is, is singularly ill-equipped to deal with the challenges right now. Like you, you have to meet the audience where they are, which is they are not trusting reporters. And if you believe in public broadcasting, like wouldn't job one be – starting from scratch and really appealing to people about what what you provide that that they need and talking to them at, at their level. That's what I was thinking. Any, <laughs> I, I, what, yeah. what, what did you come away from that interview, like thinking about this as, as I mean, at least for another year, this is the person who's there to, to see them through this crisis? She joins a long list of people who have been transformed in the 21st century into a kind of a extended imitation of comical Ali, the Iraqi official who had to keep insisting that the regime was not falling even as CNN was tracking the, the arrival of the tanks. Like, you have to stand in front of the collapsing edifice of everything that your predecessors have built and say, no, it's fine. That's what people do these days. And so I don't know how often she talks to her colleagues at the court, but I talk to them fairly often. And what they say is, uh, man, our numbers are really rough. Like a lot of Canadian institutions, weirdly like the military and like our foreign service, when you ask a lot of large... Canadian government-run or government-funded institutions, what's your mandate? 
the very Canadian response is to say, I'm just going to do everything. We're going to be the all singing, all dancing broadcaster, foreign service, development program. We are going to lift every country under the eye of God up in the development rankings. We are going to solve every disease. We are going to be. And typically what our international partners say is the Canadian shows up, urges everyone else on to greater ambition, and then doesn't deliver a damn thing himself. Yeah. And the CBC is kind of like that. Like, it's true they've got an Arctic mandate. It's true they've got an indigenous mandate. Those populations really depend on the CBC. Inevitably, the cuts uh, are turning into a language dispute with, with Francophone colleagues thinking that they've been made to cut too hard. Everyone's got a different definition of how equitably the cuts should be imposed. We've got a rural, urban. And a lot of what I heard from Catherine Tate is, we just have to do it all. And it's unfortunate that everyone's disappointed because if they understood how beautiful what we're doing is, they would get it. And it's hard to say we're not going to do thing X and we're, we need to do thing Y now. It's actually hard for me to imagine what things X and Y would be. And so, so you get this sort of comical alley routine where you say, look, it's all wonderful. And the thing that just collapsed, you ignore that, you know? I think it's just so obvious what the things should be. I think it's, it's, it's sitting there right for them on a platter and you couldn't ask for the stars to align for them to put forward a righteous message that Canadians could get behind. We're, we're desperately in need of news. Communities are desperately devoid of news coverage. And here you have like, yes, they're looking at uh, the, the probable next government is going to, is, is, is running on a platform of defunding them. Yes, they're, they're f- facing ad market slump right now, but they are getting over a billion dollars a year, when, where, which is just outweighs pretty much everybody else. And, you know, I, I agree with what Jen Gerson was saying. She says the question of whether the CBC is over or underfunded can't actually be answered until we have a very clear idea of what we want the CBC to do. And she also says we need to start with an explicit and well-defined journalistic mandate for the CBC. Like start at zero and say, what does it actually cost? If you had a billion point three dollars and you're you like, OK, what we're here to do is step in to really a catastrophe that people just are not getting the information they need to be informed citizens. So what if we were starting from scratch and, and what does that actually cost to provide news service in the way that people most want to get their news, meeting the audience where they are and, and covering legislatures and public service journalism and then kind of redefine things that way. And, and you know, I, I don't think there's a huge clamoring for more sitcoms from the CBC. So yeah. couldn't they like with, with the right leadership kind of reimagine and make it unassailable and say, look, look, if you get rid of us, what you're getting rid of is news itself. And instead, they're still playing this like, no, we kind of have to do all these things and, you know, not so well, but we're doing them. Yeah. I mean, certainly, God bless all of the conscientious artisans working at all of the drama and comedy content that the CBC puts out. I haven't, I believe I've seen none of it in many years. And I think that's fairly common. And I could get behind a mandate that says, not only are we going to shore up news, we're going to extend it and we're going to push local news into 15 jurisdictions where it's never been before. Paul, how much do you think that the CBC is just getting ahead of the inevitable Pierre Polyev government that's going to, that's running on a platform of defunding the CBC entirely? Like, are they just trying to start the process now so it doesn't hurt as much later? I ask myself that question. Is it, are, are we cutting to presage the Polyev thing or to, or, or to lighten the blow of, a, of a, an eventual Polyev defunding? It makes no sense to me. If you define cuts to the CBC's budget as 
dirty work. It makes no sense for the CBC to do the dirty work ahead of an eventual new government. One thing that came up just quite recently is that as we're talking, I got sent this story from La Presse, where a couple of sources inside the federal government are now criticizing the corp for having done these job cuts. So two anonymous sources in the Trudeau government are telling La Presse it's ridiculous that they're cutting so deeply. It's premature for them to be making these cuts. And I've got to say, it's just a, it's, it's just a perfect Ottawa vignette that the, the Trudeau government is now disowning job cuts at the public broadcaster that the Trudeau government funds. I really don't, I mean, I'm so, I'm kind of gobsmacked. I don't really know how to interpret that, except it's, it really seems that in that government, nobody is ever responsible for anything. Paul, this episode's brought to you by Article. Do you like furniture? I sure do. I sit in it all the time. You seem to be sitting in furniture right now. I think you would love Article. Paul, they got beautiful and good quality furniture at a surprisingly good price because they are online only. Uh, I have really enjoyed my interactions with this company and they're kind of a part of my life every day because we have uh, – we just bought some more of their furniture here um, at our office and I've got uh, Article stuff at home. Can't go wrong. Their stuff is very stylish. It really lasts now that we've been working with them for a while. I can tell you that. Their shipping is fast and affordable across this country. No need to rent a van or beg a friend to borrow a truck to get – no, like just make your life easier here shopping and all the parts of this. They're offering our listeners a great deal. $50 off your first purchase of 100 bucks or more. To claim it, visit article.com slash CanadaLand and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of 100 bucks or more. Paul, in this topsy-turvy world of ours where information whizzes past our heads, sometimes over our heads, we sometimes miss stories that should be noted. Paul, what do you have? We are going to be talking about Pierre Poilievre's media management uh, strategy. He put out this 15-minute video on the weekend, and my colleague Nick Taylor-Vesey at uh, Politico did the count and found that that 15-minute video used information from the reporting of 40 different mainstream media stories or outlets. So Pierre Poilievre was quoting from Canadian press stories and CBC stories and CTV and Toronto Star and on and on and on and on as he built the case that the federal government are driving the country into the ground. That's a little ha-ha-ha, I mean, because he spends the rest of his time insisting that we're, and especially mainstream media outlets are a bunch of dogs that hanging is too good for them. And then he uh, scalps the material for his uh, magnum opus. The next level is that it occurred to me that every time he does this, every time he runs a clip, every time he shows an anchor person saying something that he finds congenial, he's making fair use of broadcast material, which as recently as 2019 was a very controversial thing for political parties to do. In 2019, you will recall, the CBC tried to sue the Conservative Party of Canada for using footage of Rosemary Barton and John Paul Tasker speaking to camera about bad things that the liberals had done. And, and Rosie and so they, Barton herself was originally uh, suing. She was, she was named as a plaintiff in that, in that suit. And that, uh, I mean, I, that has still caused her to be offside a large part of her audience because she is perceived to have been in open conflict personally with the Conservative Party of Canada in the middle of an election campaign. 
something I'm sure she really wishes that her bosses had never gotten into on her behalf. But um, I still don't know if she even knew. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I've actually never had that conversation with her. I don't, I, you know, but it's funny. We, we fought the fair use wars in 2019. The people who think that they can put stuff on air and it won't be usable by political parties lost big time. And now it's kind of flipped. Now reporters at least get to notice and mock political leaders who do make extravagant use of the fair use doctrine when they uh, they scalp dozens of stories and turn them into a video. Uh, how far we've come in such a reasonably short time. Duly noted. I want to duly note that uh, Dean Blundell, a former terrestrial radio host turned podcaster and podcast network publisher has been sued by Canada Proud for $200,000. They say that Dean Blundell defamed them. Jeff Ballingal has filed this suit along with Ryan O'Connor on behalf of Ontario Proud. And what they're saying is that Blundell has libeled them by claiming that Canada Proud organized and stacked protests against Justin Trudeau with paid individuals. So we're getting to like, I guess, an allegation that he uh, had it was a conspiracy theorist. He said, right-wing nutjobs that surrounded the Prime Minister of Canada yesterday screamed in his face, those people were bussed in by Canada Proud paid agents. Uh, other tweets that Blundell sent allege Canada Proud uses bots and troll farms. So he's called Canada Proud a bunch of names. Now Canada Proud is fighting back. Blundell calls this an internet tizzy, but what isn't these days? And he says that it's a uh, attempt to muzzle him and he plans to fight this in court. And this is kind of interesting because Polyev has hired Canada Proud to boost his messaging online. And it's kind of interesting if they're like taking legal aim at media figures. How far away is that from a Polyev effort? I don't know. Yeah, I think... We're all going to have to realize, people who ask uh, politicians questions for a living are going to have to realize that uh, to the extent journalists were ever protected by a sort of a social norm that our own work and our own choices can't be questioned and are insulated from, you know, legal recourse and lawsuits and, and simple scorn, those days are gone. We are in the arena like everyone else, and the stuff we say is going to be judged. It's going to be unfairly judged very often, but there's there's no sense, there's no remaining sense that, oh, a journalist said it, so we have to we have to use kid gloves in responding. That's gone, gone, gone. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Paul, the year is not quite over, but I think that it, it might be safe to say that the most viewed Canadian-made documentary of 2023 will be one narrated and produced by Pierre Polyev. Something new and strange has happened in Canada. Canada is sitting on probably one of the largest housing bubbles of all times. Something we haven't seen before. An entire generation of youth now say they will never be able to afford a home. This is not normal for Canada. Paul, that was from Housing Hell. <laughs> a, he's subtle. You got to give him that. Uh, I like the Stranger Things music. It really feels like very scary. But like, like, look, what did Canadians want? It turns out we wanted a lot more of Pierre Polyev. We wanted 15 minutes. Uh, that, that has been viewed like around 4 million times. A 15-minute documentary that Pierre Polyev did not – he did not bring his argument to the media – he did not try to get that played by traditional broadcasters or buy airtime for it. He just independently produced this like long, wonky 15-minute documentary filled with graphs and charts and arguments about how Canada got into the shape that, uh, that we are in when it comes to, to the housing crisis and just released it. The central bank doesn't just send a Brinks truck to the prime minister's office. Rather, they use a complicated set of transactions that they call quantitative easing. Always be suspicious when you hear a complicated word that makes no sense to anyone except those benefiting from it. Here's how it goes. First, the government sells bonds to financial institutions. Then, the Bank of Canada buys those bonds right back at higher prices. Financial corporations love it because they're guaranteed a big profit. What did you make of this opus? I think it's a I think it's a brilliant move. I think it lends the guy a certain sense of gravitas that a lot of his critics have said is is missing that he's a, he's a soundbite guy and yet here he is outbidding the government on sort of the voluminousness of his policy prescriptions. It's obviously, I mean, you could go almost beat by beat through the thing and rebut many of the claims in it. And some of the policies are a little surprising. So a lot of it is bullshit. Yeah, let's not trouble ourselves with whether it's true or not, right? Yeah. It's really good. It's really good bullshit. But it's a, it, yeah, it's also, it's a, it's a canny, it shows a canny understanding of social media, which is social media encourages glibness, but it doesn't require it. Mm -hmm. I wrote 
some ungodly long essays on the decline of traditional media and the rise of social media uh, in June of this year at paulwells.substack.com. One of the things I pointed out is you don't actually have to only tweet or you don't actually only have to put out four second Instagram stories. You could also, what I said at the time was that if Francois Philippe Champagne wants to put out a thumping manifesto about Canadian industrial policy tonight on his uh, Twitter account, you know, linked to a medium page or whatever with a 300 page opus, no force on earth could stop him. And I'm, I, I, what I said at the time is I'm actually a little surprised that we don't see more cases of that. Here is my manifesto or here is my uh, sweeping epic of Canadian decline or Canadian redemption or whatever. Yeah. Lo and behold, here's an example from Pierre Polyev. It's not even the first example. In 2014, before he became prime minister, Justin Trudeau put out this seven or eight minute animated video of an arm that looks like uh, Justin Trudeau's arm drawing cartoons about Wilfrid Laurier's sunny ways and how that applied to the current economic fix that Canada was then in. And then the Trudeau-looking arm drew slopes that showed uh, declining debt to GDP and the rising cost of of housing and all of that shit. Our first French-Canadian prime minister, Wilfrid Laurier, used to like to tell the fable about the wind and the sun. There was a challenge to see who was stronger, who could get a traveler's coat off. First, the wind blustered and blew, but the traveler just held on tighter and tighter. Then the sun simply smiled, shining down on the traveler, gently warming him until he willingly removes his coat. Laurier used the term sunny ways to explain that persuasion is superior to force. I want to talk about our economy. I'll leave out the attacks and partisanship. Instead, I want to show you that we have the means to grow the economy and improve life for the middle class at the same time. And at the time, there were a few days of uproar that, my God, Justin Trudeau is going around traditional media and so on. And there's a French term that translates as uh, the one who thought he was taking has been taken. Uh, He's hoist on his own petard. And now it's Trudeau's worst enemy who's using some of those same techniques at greater length against him. Just had me wondering what a Trudeau-looking arm looks like, but... Unreasonably hairy. <laughs> the, the end run around media is interesting because he gets the good traditional media anyhow. Like, look, the Globe and Mail has just been, like, gushing over this thing. Pierre Polyev video on housing crisis draws wide audience online. Like, a, a news story in a national newspaper about how big the audience is. And then followed up by a uh, Ibbotson column with one video, Pierre Polyev has taken control of the housing debate. And similarly, kind of just like shrugging off the fact that it's 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 kind of bullshit because it, it contains inaccuracies and distortions. Like it, it, it omits any mention of the pandemic. Basically, it says that municipal red tape, which prevents developers from building more homes, is the federal government's fault because the federal government gives money to municipalities. Somehow that gets late. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff in there that just like, like he, and, and he does a lot of sophistry of like building a case that is actually cogent and using a lot of information, as you said, from the news media. And even within this video, our producer Aviva caught something like he relies on CBC information to make his argument that Justin Trudeau has created housing hell. And then he talks about how government waste needs to be cleaned up because this is the solution. And there's a picture of a CBC balance sheet, the CBC's budget. 
So in the same video that he relies on CBC reporting, he's like, and the way that we fix this is by killing the CBC. So as you mentioned earlier, there's 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 that hypocrisy there. I really want to ask him if I ever get the chance to interview the guy. Like, wh- once you get rid of the CBC and the media subsidies, which you know I don't support either, but like, what is the information landscape that Pierre Polyev imagines? Is it just videos from Pierre Polyev? Even an interview with a congenial uh, interviewer is not perfectly clean message. You have to hope they ask the kind of question you want. You have to hope that they use the answer that you give. You have to put up with some dead time where they're asking a lame question and you have to give a boring answer. Whereas this thing where you shoot and cut and animate and script and voice your preferred message and spend however long it takes to edit it so that it's just, you know, chef's kiss. I'm honestly surprised that politicians don't do this more often because, and and the more you do it, the less novelty effect it'll have, the fewer eyeballs you will get. But it's always better than hoping that the fates hand you a question that you can knock out of the park. And I think one measure of the sort of amazing funk that this liberal government is in is that Nobody on their bench has produced anything comparable in longer than I can remember. I remember at one point when Catherine McKenna was the environment minister, I went to look for a speech that she had delivered that summed up her thinking as the minister of the environment of Canada at a crucial moment in a climate crisis. I couldn't find a fucking speech by Catherine McKenna. (laughs) Her office, the PMO, her own instincts, which are very social media driven, had kept her from ever producing a sort of a manifesto statement of what she was trying to do on climate that was longer than about four minutes. People, in general, just astonish me all the time. What are you doing? If you're communications obsessed, when are you planning to start communicating? In the sense that anyone before 2015 would ever have understood the word communicating. Communicate. Go on ahead. I can't stop you. Paul, after telling this really compelling story to Canada and the world in 2015, the Sunny Ways story, the Because It's 2015 story, I don't know that they've told a cogent narrative of any kind since then. If I can offer any novelty, if there's any point to me being here in the Shortcuts co-host chair today, it's people should not be amazed that Pierre Poiliev has produced a 15-minute video on a policy file. People should be absolutely stunned that no one else does this all the time. Like, the shit is just lying there waiting for you to do it. The tools, we have more tools than we have ever had to get message out. And the way people use it is to post an Instagram photo of them and their colleagues kayaking or some lame shit like that. Like, he went to Barbie, you know, and that's, uh, people were talking about Barbie at the time. And yeah, it's, um, you know, anyway, I know. Paul, that shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me. It was fun. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com and I read every email that is sent. Paul Wells, tell people about your podcast. Paul Wells Show is uh, um, uh, produced in my capacity as the inaugural journalist in residence at the Monk School at the University of Toronto. And then it gets turned into a podcast by my friends at Antica Productions. Every week we have an interview with a newsmaker, someone who's trying to get something done in this world, and it's a lot of fun. And then uh, I've got a newsletter too, paulwells.substack.com, which is even more fun. Check them both out. 
This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and you will be a part of the solution to the journalism crisis in this country. We'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Listen, from today until Monday, December 11th, we have free shipping across Canada on any order from the Canada Land merch store. Have you been eyeing something in our store? Have you not seen our store? Come look at our store because uh, today is the time to order for you or for the Canada Land fan in your life. Every purchase supports our journalism. We will donate a portion of each sale to Journalists for Human Rights in support of its Canadian programs. If you support Canada Land on Supercast or Patreon, you can use your supporter discount code. You'll get at least 20% off. And we just make great stuff. It looks fantastic. Head to CanadaLandStore.com to take advantage of free expedited shipping Canada-wide from December 7th to 11th. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to CanadaLand.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.